turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24, and we will be reading verses 1 through 9. Acts 24, 1 through 9, beginning in verse number 1. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain order named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we come before you with thanksgiving now as we open up the Bible. And we thank you that you have given to us your holy word. We pray at this time that as we study it together, as we hear preaching and teaching on it, that you would apply it to our hearts for your own glory and for your honor. Lord, we recall that your word tells us that this word is a lamp to our feet and is a light to our path. And so in a lost world of darkness, we thank you that you have given to us your word as a light, as a guide, so that we would know rightly what to believe and what your will is for your people. May you be glorified then through this time, and we give you this thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, technology is always great when it works right. <laughs> Amen. Well, good to be together with, gathered together again, brethren, as we... Again, uh, we've been truly blessed beyond measure. And I don't say that lightly, brother. And again, uh, you know, Brother Dean just prayed concerning the word of God. And we have truly been blessed beyond measure to be seated together under the tutelage by the Holy Ghost in the sacred classroom of the book of Acts. It really has been such a joyable thing to see how God is, is working and continues to work today. And there's so many principles and uh, things that we draw from the book of Acts, and then the Lord incorporates that into his church. And one of them, for sure, as we've been seated here in the classroom of the book of Acts, God himself has allowed us to behold and gaze upon his providence in the soul journeying of his chosen vessel, Paul. 
And again, brethren, this is the thing that we see over and over and over again. We remember, don't we, when we began the book of Acts. And we've, we've been here, I, I, I said to myself, a long, long time. <laughs> we've been here, we started a long, long time ago. And you remember that early on in the book of Acts, we see miracle after miracle after miracle. That's what you see. It just You see it over and over again. This miracle takes place where, where God intervenes through men and they, they go outside of that, the established order, and they're, they're raising dead people. They're doing all these things. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as we've moved along through the book of Acts, those miracles that we were seeing have quieted down. They are beginning to, if you will, almost not fade into the background. We believe that God still does miracles. I still believe that. But here in the book of Acts, what's come to the forefront is the providence of God, his providential working in the lives of his people. And it's an amazing, stunning thing to see that miracles early on as God is establishing his church. And then again, now we've seen over and over again in the last month for sure, his providence coming forth in the book of Acts. And as we gathered together this morning again, we see how that is going to continue. When our sermon ended last Lord's Day morning, Paul had been handed over by the Roman uh, government or by the Roman army to the government, you know, to Felix in Caesarea, where Felix then reads the letter that was written and sent with Paul from Lysias. And uh, he begins immediately then to interrogate the Apostle Paul, you remember that. Where are you from? And he was trying to make sure, again, under Roman law, that he had jurisdiction to gladly get his hands on the Apostle Paul. This is something that we looked at. And in all of that, again, we saw how the providential hand of God, it, what seems just the Apostle Paul standing before Felix, it was actually a providential promise, wasn't it, brethren, that he had made 20 years earlier to Paul where he said, you will stand before kings. You will preach my name before kings and before Gentiles and even into the very hallways of the palace. And our text last week was the beginning of that, was the beginning of God providentially taking Paul and allowing him to preach before kings and governors and those who are in high places, if you will. Well, Paul, as we remember, as we take up our text this morning, is currently being held in their custody at Herod's Praetorium. And so as we take up the text this morning, this is where we're at. Paul's being held there in custody, and uh, they're waiting for the Jewish uh, attack dogs to come down and, uh, and to bring the accusations. And this is really where we take up our text this morning as we wade into chapter 24. And again, through all of this, God's providence is in the forefront, always working. And this is one of the things that I have learned as a Christian, just going through this glorious holy classroom of the book of Acts is again to understand that God is always working. He's always working things out for his glory and his good and for our glory or for our good as in our lives. And so this is what you see over and over again. In fact, as we begin chapter 24, the Holy Ghost leads Luke to give us a very orderly outline. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, for the next, well, three weeks, amen, we're going to just kind of chunk this thing out according to how the, the Holy Ghost had laid this thing out here. And we notice, again, in verses 1 through 9, we see the Jewish charges that are being brought against Paul. Look there at verse number 5, if you would, of chapter 24. This is what happens. Tertullius shows up, and uh, he's bringing some charges. Look at verse 5. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, 
a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. So again, the, this whole text, our verse 1 through 9, it's all about these charges being brought against Paul. In the next section, as the Holy Spirit had divided that, now again, men put verses in there, right? Amen. The verses weren't there, but you can see how nicely the Spirit of God divided that up there. In verses 10 through 21, we see where Paul then takes up. You remember what he's doing. He's, he's standing and giving a defense, an apologia of the gospel before them. He's done it before. Now again, God's going to give him another glorious opportunity to do that. Look there at verse 10, if you would, where Paul again, and we'll... This is how we're going to break this down. And they were in the, uh, verse number 10, the Bible says, I've got to get there myself. Then Paul, after that, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered. And so, again, Paul here in verse number 10 begins his defense, his apologia. Once again, the God is uh, opening the door for him to stand before the governor, a high-ranking Roman official, and preach the gospel and give a defense for that. And then finally, in verse 22 there, you look as we go on from 22 through 27, we see Felix's response. And this is going to be a most interesting thing, brother. And when we get to Felix's response, it's so amazing. Look at verse 22 there just to kind of help us to see this thing divided up the way it is. And when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, I'm seeing again the how God is working in Paul's life providentially. He's working in Caesarea. And now the Jewish prosecuting team, if you will, arrives to state their unholy charges against Paul. And we notice, and again, this is really important. This is something that was near and dear to Ananias. You look there, the chief priest himself is coming here because this is an important case that he's going to oversee himself to make sure that the apostle Paul is indeed charged and put to death for what he's doing. So we see the importance there. Not only do we see Ananias, the, the high priest himself, but the band of elders. And a man, Luke records a man by the name of Tertullus. Now they brought Tertullus for one purpose and one purpose only, to accomplish, amen, the will and pleasure of those Jewish leaders who hired him. He is not there to tell the truth. Amen, this is amazing. He's not there to tell the truth or to seek for justice whatsoever. And in fact, we know this by the way Holy Writ describes him here. And I want you to take note of this. Again, this is interesting how the Bible, how Luke, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, describes him. It characterizes this Tertullus as being an orator. Now, many people think it was a lawyer. The Bible doesn't say that here. He might have been. But it uses a different word, the word orator, which comes our English word rhetoric. And brethren, we know what rhetoric is. Let me define what this is. Again, he's an orator. The, again, there are some translations that call him a lawyer. The Bible does not say that this word does not indicate that. He might have been. But he is an orator, one who, if you will, spews rhetoric. <laughs> I think all of us this morning can understand what rhetoric is. I mean... <laughs> All we got to do is flip the channel on and watch a little news, and you'll see some rhetoric. Well, let me give you the definition of rhetoric. It is the art of using language designed specifically to have a strong persuasive effect on its audience. But listen, is lacking sincerity in any kind of substance. 
So again, this is what we've got. We've got this Tertullius, who is an order, the Bible calls him, who the elders and the chief priest himself brings along to spew along some of this rhetoric. And believe you me, brethren, does he ever spew the rhetoric? It is a most stunning thing. In fact, the preceding eight verses are full to the brim and overflowing with his unholy rhetoric. And I want us to see this in verses 2 and 3. Look there if you would. Again, things are not put in holy writ by accident. They are there by God's design. Every single word, every single word that's there is there by God's design and God's purpose. And this is the purpose we see here in verses 2 and 3. Look there if you would. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now there was a whole lot of words added there, brethren, by our orator. It's an amazing thing. This silver-tongued orator begins, as I worded it myself as I read this, by dumping a pile of gooey, syrupy, slippery, slimy rhetoric right down on top of Felix's already inflated ego. And I want you to see the words here that he uses. You want to see rhetoric. You want to see flattery. You want to see the, the most amazing thing. Listen, if you would. Look at verse 2. I want you to notice that he doesn't say, well, it's been, it's been just wonderful because we've enjoyed quietness. No. Look at the word he adds in front of quietness. Look at verse number 24. We enjoy great quietness. Now, again, his flattery, the words he's adding here, are doing nothing but, again, piling, what did I say? Syrupy, slimy, slinky words right on top of his ego. Now, look at the next thing. Not only does he add great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done. Not that your deeds were done there, Felix, but very worthy deeds. Again, we're simply just piling it on. It's a stunning thing. Have you ever met someone that has a flattering tongue? Do you know how many times in the Bible it speaks of how unholy the flattering tongue is? Go to the book of Proverbs. Look in the book of Psalms. Look in the New Testament. It's a stunning thing how God defines, well, the tongue itself, let alone a flattering tongue. And this is what this orator, who is spewing rhetoric, is doing. Now look at it as he continues. Not only is it great quietness, not only are they very worthy deeds, look at verse number 3. Look what it says. We accept it, what? Always. Not sometimes there, Felix, but always. I mean, you're so great, Felix, that we always accept what you do. Not only is it always, but look at here, not in some places, but in all places. Do you see that there? I mean, this guy is just dumping it down on top of him. It's a stunning thing to behold. And then look there, if you would, as we continue this. He doesn't just call him Felix. Verse number three, he calls him most what? most noble Felix, and that's not enough. He doesn't just thank Felix for, for, he's not just thankful, but he is all thankful for it. So again, we see this stuff as it goes on and on and on. But then he says this in verse number four. Look what he says in verse number four. He adds all of this stuff on there, and then he says this to Felix in verse number four. Look there. Notwithstanding, 
that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. No, you just got done. Again, adding words and dumping words and trying to scratch this guy's ego beyond measure. Now he says, ah, we're just going to have a few words here as we stand before you, Felix. I mean, it's a stunning thing. We've all met somebody like that. We all know someone like that that has a flattering tongue and just it's just a stunning, gooey, unholy thing when you think about it. This is indeed a clear biblical rendition, as I put in my notes, of syrupy, slimy rhetoric that really brings forth the character. And again, brethren, this is what we're talking about, the character of this man, the character of Tertullus. He's just like those who hired him. Their character is suspect. Their character is slimy. Their character is all of these things. And so what is that old saying, brethren? The birds of what? Feathers flock together. This is exactly what we see here. Again, Tertullus has no interest in justice, no interest in telling the truth, none of that. He's simply interested in bringing to pass, bringing to pass what they think is going to be Paul's demise. And so they use this rhetoric, this guy with rhetoric, just an amazing thing. But, brethren, however, our religious affections are drawn back to verse 2, where he attributes providence. Verse number 2, we're going to look at that. Where he attributes providence. The Bible says, as we look in verse 2, by thy providence, O Felix. <laughs> amazing thing, isn't it? Now listen, brethren, from a human perspective, what is providence? Again, this is what we've been seeing, and we're going to biblically define it from a human perspective and also from God's perspective. So from a human perspective, what does providence mean? It means to provide, to make provisions beforehand in both a positive and a negative application. So let's look at that again. Just from a human perspective, what is providence? What does that mean? In fact, you'll notice, brethren, some translations, if you look down in your Bible and you don't have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, that's not even there. That verse, the end of that, by thy providence, is not there. But it is here because God designed it to be here. There's a glorious purpose for it being here. Amen? Thy providence. What does it mean? Well, let me show you this. In fact, the word's already been used. Look at Acts 23. It's already been used. And it literally means, again, to provide, to make provision aforetime, to, if you will, have foresight to be able to see, if you will, before uh, the need arises. You look there at verse tw chapter 23. Look at verse 23. Look there, if you would. And he called on to him two centurions, saying, Make ready 200 soldiers and go to Caesarea. And the horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred, and the third hour of the night. And what's that next word? Provide. There it is. There's that word provision. From a human perspective, what does that mean? It means that Lysias here saw that Paul was going to need a way of travel, and so he provided Paul with what? Some horses. Remember in the army, he's in the middle of that with his horses, and God is guiding or protecting him as he's walking along with the 470 men that, he, that God provided through his providence to protect Paul. So this is the idea here, to provide. Now, again, the Bible is very clear. That's a positive way of providing, provision. That's what it means, providence. Literally means to do that. Let me show you here in Romans chapter 13, just a couple of them here, just a couple of examples. Again, Paul uses the same word. This word is not used very often, especially when it comes to the human perspective. Look here at Romans chapter 13. 
Look at verse number 13 there, if you would. Look there what the Bible says. Paul says, as Christians, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, one of Howard's favorite verses, and make no what? No provisions for the flesh. Literally, that's what that means. This is the negative. In other words, brethren, we're all tempted differently in different ways unless you are different than I am. And most of the time when the temptation comes, it doesn't come on you immediately. You know what happens? You'll see things and you'll see a pattern. Things start to happen. You start seeing things or you start thinking about things or you start doing some things. And Paul is saying here, when you have the foresight to see that, don't make provision for it. Do not allow it to take place. Again, this is a gloriously negative positive in Scripture. When you have the foresight to see what's coming, don't make provision. And this is the idea here. Again, the idea is foresight, and the idea is providing for it. This is in, if you will, a negative sense. Look at one more, just one more in the New Testament. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. It's really interesting as you study this out, this idea of providence from a human perspective and the responsibility that we have that God has given us in his word concerning human providence, human provided. Look there at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse number 7. Look at here what Paul writes to Timothy. And these things given charge that ye may be blameless. But if any what? Provide. Do you see that there? There's an actual condemnation in Scripture concerning providence, concerning providing the same exact word. Look what it says. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. This is what we're seeing from a human perspective. This is what uh, they are saying to Felix. Felix, as a human, in your providence, you have done some things and provided some things for our state. But brethren, let me just say this. When it is applied to God, it is a completely different animal and category. Completely, vastly different. You know why, brothers? Because I am a finite being, and so are you. God is infinite. When God, when it speaks of God's providence, we have seen it, again, upon display as God has been bringing Paul along in the book of Acts and Peter and the rest of them. But it is far beyond what we can begin to grasp or really get a hold of. It takes a supernatural dimension, as all of us have been witness to, as I said. God not only looks ahead. God not only has foresight. But there's a difference between you looking ahead and saying, I have to feed my children. i got to go do this and I have to go do that. God in his wisdom, in his providence, not only makes provision for his decrees, but he alone is infallibly, listen, he inf infallibly accomplishes that which he has ordered. That's the difference. God infallibly, without error, when he says, this is what I'm going to do, this is what he does, because he's infallible in that. He has the power to make that happen. You and I do not. We are simply creatures. 
We simply do in the, from a human perspective to understand what God has done. When you provide for your family, you understand how God has provided for us spiritually. Do you understand that? That's where this is. That's what it does. It's like when we're raising our children. Cole, all you guys with these young children, they are seeing their parents. Well, they still see me too, I guess to a degree. But I have gray hair now, a gray beard. But when you treat your children as a father, what do they learn? They learn how God the Father is. You treat them like he does. And it, what it does is it grooms them and it helps them to understand that God is God. This is how God operates. This is how we see God. And brethren, it's a stunning thing, the providence of God again. And one of the very first times in Holy Scripture that this word is used of God is found in Genesis chapter 22. See, this is much deeper than we think. This providence of God that we often, people throw that word around. This providence of God, we try not to do that. It goes much deeper than we can even begin to imagine. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. I want you to see where one of the very first times this word is used. And the depth, the difference between me taking care of my family, although there's the example for my family, but only God can do what God did providentially. I can't save my children. And neither can you save yours, but he can. Amen? Look at Genesis chapter 22. Let's just look there quickly. One of the very first times in Holy Writ that that word, the providence of God and God providing, is used in Scripture. And it goes to the depth of our very souls. It goes to the depth of your salvation this morning and my salvation, the salvation of every person that's ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us. It goes back to what God did here as he foresaw, as he uh, provided future, amen, because it's, what, is it 2023 already? Well, way back when, a lot, well, you think we've been an ax a long time. Genesis was written a long, long time ago, a long time ago, and God foreseeing that you and I as sinners, we need a Savior. We need to be saved, and only God can provide it. And look what he does here in Genesis chapter 22. Again, one of the very first times this word is ever used concerning God. Look at verse number 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. This is the idea. This is the provision of God for the things that you and I could never do. We could never accomplish in and of ourselves, period. He is again here if you will, typing salvation. He's typing Christ. Isaac is a type of Christ all through Genesis chapter 22 here. Everything from he's, he looks up in three days and he's got some two men that were with him. He wrote an ass to the, where he was going to take him. I mean, all of it's, it's a typology of Christ. And yet it's God here in his providence providing for our salvation. Look what it says there again. Verse number 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Look at he actually gives us definition there. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by, its hor by his horns. And Abraham went, to look at, to, uh, went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Look at verse 14 again. 
And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. What does that mean, brother? It means that in the hill, the Lord will provide. Again, this is the depth of what we have going on here. This is what we've seen in the life of Paul. Listen, as we said earlier, he should have been dead three times already. There's been three riots. He's been saved by the hand of God over and over and over again. And here he now is standing before the governor. Why? Because God decreed it. Because God ordered it. Because in his providence, he said, you will indeed stand before the governors. You will indeed go to Rome, no matter what it looks like. No matter if it looks like they're going to tear you from limb to limb, he was saved, no matter what it looks like. And again, here he stands. He stands before the governor now, and these charges are being brought against him by men. And here's the providence of God working through all of it. It's an amazing, stunning thing, brethren, that we learn from such glorious texts such as these. In fact, brother, not only does providence contain those elements of God, but there's one more I want you to see. And again, this encourages us. It sends chills up my spine, up my leg, up my arms, you know, up my hairy arms, all kinds of things. It has the idea mixed and mingled, if you will, in with it, the understanding of God is for us. Do you understand what that means? The depth of what that means, that God is for us in his providential working. When you're a child of God, God is for you. In fact, Paul wrote about this. I want you to see this. Again, another glorious portion of God's providence. Again, the providence from the human perspective is things that we can teach our children through providing for them. But God provides that which we cannot provide. And that is, of course, our souls, the salvation of our soul. Look what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8. Again, real quickly. The, again, the overall context is this, that God is for you, for us. He's for his people. Again, brother, no matter what, no matter what it looks like out there. We were talking about our elders meeting yesterday. Well, did we solve all the problems, brother? I don't think we solved all the world problems, some of them. But we look out and we see what's happening. You cannot help but look out and see what's happening. Brethren, guess what? If I wasn't a Christian, I was talking to my neighbor. We met a neighbor that I just, she walked up. I was doing something outside and she walked up and we started talking. It's funny, isn't it? There's so many of us and yet we think there's so few of us that think like we do. And we, we got to talking. She goes, I, I just want to get out the Bible and read the book of Revelation. Yeah, amen, right? But more than that, as we're walking in this life, as we're moving along and circumstances and things come along, brethren, God is for you. Fear not. God is for us. That's the idea, another, really the, another leg of providence. Look at here what Paul wrote. In Romans chapter 8, a very familiar portion of Scripture. But look here. I want the saints this morning to hear and be cheered and to be of good cheer as we looked at that, to be encouraged, amen, no matter what is going on out there. You remember that God, who is sovereign in his providence, is for us, no matter what, just like Paul. Look here at Romans chapter 8. Look there if you would. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be what? For us. Who can be against us? This is the thought. 
And you remember prior to this text, prior to him saying that, we have the beautiful what? Golden chain of redemption. Where in it, it speaks of the working of God and the child of God's life. Those what? I mean, it's just, it's just amazing if you look at that. Those he foreknew, he predestinated. Those he predestinated, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Listen, those he justified, he what? Glorified. You know what that language is, brethren? This is a beautiful thing. If you're a child of God this morning, we believe, don't we, in the preservation of the saints. Why? Because we can hold on ourselves? No, because it is the power of God and Christ that keeps us. Amen? He who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. It is him. It is he. It is in his providence in your life this morning and every day that we can lean on this and understand that God is for us. God indeed is providentially working in all of our lives. Now look at here. In fact, the providence of God in Paul's activity as they were trying to tear him limb to limb. In fact, Tertullius here, the orator, reminds Felix of this. And I want you to see this again, the providence of God at work. In fact, Felix, uh, or in the letter, it gets, uh, if you will, it gets reminded. They don't realize what it is, but that's what it is. Look there at Acts 24. Look at verses 7. Look at verse number 7. Look at this. It's, it's an amazing thing. Again, these Jews are looking at what happened to Paul and how God has saved him over and over and over again. And then they accuse that nasty Lysias. That nasty Lysias, if he wouldn't have done what he did by the providential hand of God, we've, we would have already killed Paul. And here we are standing here again for the third or fourth time. <laughs> wouldn't you think? Oh, brother, look. I mean, my mind's not that big. I don't have a big mind. It's very small. It, is, it takes a while to get stuff in there. In fact, I told the brothers yesterday, I have for, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I've forgotten more than I know now. I mean, it's amazing how it just seeks on out of the mind. But you see this, brethren, just a stunning thing. As we look and we see here what he says. Look at verse number 7. That nasty Lysias, he wouldn't have came along. We'd have Paul killed already. Look at verse 6. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. Uh, or verse 7. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us. And with great violence took him away. Took Paul away. We had him right where we wanted him. What did we again? We talked about Lysias. He was what? He was a providential instrument of God saving Paul. It's a stunning thing, brother. And again, just, I'm not trying to be a broken record here. But I'm trying just to lay out for the Christian this morning. That brother in God is for you. Who can be against us? Not Lysias, not the Jews, not the, not, the, not the chief priest, not even Felix, as he's standing before Felix to hear these charges. But look what he says there now. So again, we see how God is working. And I want you to see here in verses 5 and 6 these charges that are brought forth. This is something that all of us can relate to. You know what a troubler is? A troubler, we're going to read about what a troubler is. See, brethren, as our world falls into the sewer, you know who's getting blamed? Who's getting blamed? Christians. 
if them terrible, nasty Christians weren't Bible-believing people, we could just do whatever we want and because they won't allow us to. Oh, oh, my, it's the Christian's fault. And it's always that way. It's always when the preacher of righteousness comes and preaches righteousness, whose fault is it? It's his fault. It's the preacher's fault. He's the troubler. Not that you've turned away from God. Howard was talking about it this morning in Malachi. They turn away from God. Trouble comes. Judgment comes. That's not the preacher's fault. That's not the Christian's fault. That's not the Bible's fault. That's your fault. And it's always that way. It always is. Look there at verse number 5. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. I love that word. A mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, which can we exaggerate some more? I mean, again, he's a pestilent fellow. He's a mover of sedition throughout all the world. Look at here. And a ringleader of that sect, the Nazarenes. He's a, oh, this guy, this, this Paul, he is quite an evil He's all of these things. He's a seducer. He's all of these things. It's an amazing thing. In fact, as we see here in our text, here we go again. But brethren, through the mouth of their slick orator. It isn't the Jews saying at this time. It's their orator with his rhetoric. Again, accusing Paul. He's, a, he's one of these. He's a pestilent fellow. You realize that word pestilence is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it comes out of the mouth of Christ himself only one other time. It's amazing. He's a pestilent fellow. It's an amazing thing. Now, here again, we have their orator with four over-exaggerated, unfounded, untrue accusations as we have seen. Paul, he says, is a pestilent fellow. You know what pestilence means? Again, as I said, we're going to look. Jesus himself used it one other time in the New Testament only. It is a term used to describe a plague or any deadly infectious melee. So in other words, the preacher of the gospel who's standing for the truth is being called a plague. He's being called a pestilent. He is bringing melee like you can't believe because of what he's preaching, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, brethren, I want you to see the only other time this is used. Look at Luke chapter 21 by the Lord Jesus himself. Only here... And only in Luke, look at this here, Luke chapter 21. Look there, if you would, at verse number 10, a familiar portion of Scripture. Again, Luke wrote Acts, so we'll look at Luke's account. It's also found in Matthew. But here Luke uh, records it again for us. Look at Luke 21. Look at verse uh, number 10. Look what the Bible says there. Then he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and what? Pestilences. The only other place it's used. Again, it's a plague. It is a, something that is a, if you will, a deadly infectious melee. This is what it's talking about. But listen to what the Bible says. And fearful sights and great signs shall be there from heaven. But therefore, uh, all these things, they shall lay their, uh, their, but before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you. And persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, to being brought before who? Kings and rulers for my name's sake. Again, the providence of God. 
at work. Through his providence, through this situation, through these things, you guys are going to be brought before kings and you will be preaching the gospel before them. Why? How? Through the providence of God. And only through his providence. Look what it says there. And it shall turn out for you a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. And some of you shall, be, uh, shall they cause to be put to death. Listen. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Again, brethren, the troubler is not the troubler because of who he is. The troubler is the troubler because of who he preaches. Do you understand that? This is the idea here again. We see this over and over and over again. And one of the, I, I, I giggle. I mean, it makes me laugh sometimes when you read certain portions of Scripture. And I, I want to do that. And then as we move along, Paul is a pest, a public menace, one who was a malignant and mischievous, causing all manner of trouble. This is what they're saying of him. It's a stunning. It's the same thing that was said earlier in the Bible of a man. Anybody remember who it was? Who's the troubler in the Old Testament? Well, there were many preachers, but look with me at 1 Kings. You'll see here. Elijah, a preacher of righteousness. Elijah, a man of God who uh, followed the Lord God, who trusted in the Lord God. Again, what is he called? He kept preaching the truth. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Look there if you would. 1 Kings chapter 18. Ahab hated him. You know why? Because Ahab was a devil. Ahab was an unregenerate man who was trying to kill and take and steal. Elijah's going, no. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that what? Troubleth Israel. Elijah's the righteous preacher. He's preaching truth and righteousness, but no, he's called the troubler of Israel. It's the same thing here. This is what they're calling Paul. He is a pestilent fellow. He is a seducer. He is a, if you will, all of these things. Paul is a mover of sedition and a ringleader of the Nazarenes. He was accused, brethren, listen, of being a leader of men engaged in an illegal enterprise. You know what the illegal enterprise was? I hope you do. I hope I don't have to utter this and you know what it is. The illegal enterprise is preaching what? The gospel. That's what he's accused of. This seducer, this ringleader of the Nazarene, he's accused of breaking the law. But whose law? That's the question. Amen? Whose law is it? Who is he accused of bringing trumped-up charges on? It's not God's law. It's men's law. In fact, we are told that. The, the, you know, he's following the Lord Jesus Christ. They're being accused as rioters and mutineers, if you will. But it's not according to God's law. Look, at the Bible tells us here in Acts. Look there, if you would, 24. Look at verse number 6. They're doing all of this not because it is of the Lord, but because it is of man-made understanding. And again, this is the miraculous thing about our text. All of this that takes place, as we know, is a miracle, if you will, of regeneration in a man's life or a woman's life or a man's heart or a child's heart or whatever it might be. It's the miraculous working of God. In fact, look there. He's being accused of this illegal enterprise following the Lord Jesus Christ as rioters and mutineers. 
But look at verse number 6. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to whose law? Our law. Not God's law, their law. This is what they're doing. Again, this is what we see here again. God, if you will, in his providence, striking down their actions, striking down their evil intents. Because indeed, Paul, as he promised, as we said, will indeed be in Rome preaching in just a couple years. It's a stunning thing. I like what one pastor, how he put it. He said, Whenever Paul, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. Can I say that again? Wherever Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. But it was not Paul. Listen, brethren, again, this is the whole thing. But it was not Paul that was guilty of causing the riot. But it was indeed the Jews who opposed his gospel preaching. That's the idea here. You see what the gospel does. It's amazing, the reaction to the gospel. It either indeed causes a revival in one's heart or it causes a riotous rebellion against God. It's a stunning thing to watch and behold. It's stunning. But this is what we see here again, the providence of God at work in Paul's life. Let me just close as we are getting near the end with a, well, we've seen some practical stuff, but just a practical reminder as I remind myself as I see these things in God's word. The providence of God is not the outworking of some impersonal abstract principle. That's not what this is. It is not just some principle that we see in Scripture. It's there, but it's much more than that. Paul and you and me and those of us who are children of God that principle is alive and well and working perfectly according to his purposes. It is not just a principle. It is something that God is working out, that he's working through. And we see it again, over and over again. He is indeed, God is directly involved in all of our affairs. Now we have learned this, brethren, through revelation. And you know what I mean by that? through what we're reading, through the pages of Holy Scripture. That's God's revelation to us. It is the book, his book, every word, every single word that's here that reveals to us his glorious working in your heart, in your life, and in mine. It is a stunning principle and certainly promise to grasp onto. Our human reasoning cannot grasp this. You, you can't sit down and see what God is doing. And you just ponder for a minute, brother, if you would. Now, this isn't dark and creepy and some new age thing. But if you're sitting with your Bible quietly, and you're reading scripture, and you think about your life, you think about what God is doing and has done, this glorious truth will just come to life out of the pages of scripture for you. That's one of the things, again, you always pray that the Spirit of God will sink something deep down into your heart. For me, this is one of the things over the last month for sure, as I said, the miracles have quieted down, but we've seen the providence of God just moving forth. You know why the miracles are quieting down? Because the Bible's being written. 
you understand this. Does God still do miracles? Yes, I, I believe he does. You can't explain it when I saw recently a man that was preaching and he was not trying to be unholy. He took his shirt off to show the church of the cancer that he had. And we are talking huge lumps everywhere. Out of his stomach, out of his side, out of his back, out of his underarms. Huge lumps dying from cancer as he's preaching. And his church began to pray. And it was just a matter, a very short period of time. And it was miraculous. They were gone. He's still alive today, preaching. You don't think that was God doing that? Yes, it was. God's providence working out in that man's life as he keeps him here to preach and to preach on. It's the same in yours. It's the same thing. God still does miracles. But we see this more as we get towards the latter end of Acts. Because the Bible, Ephesians, these books are being written and being brought together. That is how it's revealed to us, brethren. Not in dreams, not in some audible voice that comes when I'm laying in my bed at night and God says to me, like that, I can't remember who to told me that example. Maybe it was Howard, I don't remember. God came to a woman who had five children and told her to leave her family and go on the mission field. God didn't tell her that. God would never tell you that. God would tell the wife, you stay home and take care of your children. I'll send... Well, my, no, I'll send somebody, but not you. That didn't come from God. We are re this revelation that we have of these things comes from his closed canon. The word that we study. The word that is effectual in our hearts. Now, brethren, think about this. As God is directly involved in your affairs, learning it through the revelation, through scriptures, I want you to understand something, that it all boils down to back to Genesis chapter 22. The Lord Jesus tabernacled among us in the incarnation. Think of that. That was part of God's providence. His providing for us. His eternal purpose that existed before the world began. You have to think of this in eternal consequences. And it was indeed effectuated in time at the moment of his own choosing. You were saved at his own choosing. He decided when the time had arrived and, brought, and is bringing it all to pass. Your life is being lived out through his providence. It is in this way that God has spread his benefits, his beneficence throughout all the ages even down, brethren, to this very hour. God in his providence, providing himself a lamb who would die a sinless sacrifice that his people might believe on him and be saved. This is a glorious thing that is intertwined and raveled together and tied together through all the pages of scripture. Even here in the book of Acts, as we see him working out his glorious purposes and plan in Paul's life. Let's pray together.
Father, we are enamored at your word. We are so thankful that you have indeed preserved it down through the ages of time. From Moses, Job, the oldest book in the Bible, Moses, the, the genesis of things, all the way to the Apostle John. Clear into Revelation chapter 22, the very last words, amen. And in that, Father, you are revealing and have revealed yourself as the one who provided our spiritual need. You alone have provided. Your Son, the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and he, he lived that out in earthly time. He indeed was born of a virgin. He indeed grew up, had half-brothers and sisters. Lived amongst men. The Bible says that he tabernacled amongst us. Although he was begotten, he was unique. The only unique begotten son of God. Born of the Holy Ghost. Who even at 12 years old <laughs> told his step-parents, don't you know I must be about my father's business. And he was. And that business included that he would be sinless, that he would die on a cross and shed his blood. His lifeblood would flow out, that there wouldn't be one single bone broken. He was indeed the perfect sacrifice without blemish, that he would indeed be placed into a borrowed tomb that he would lay there for three days and three nights and that he would indeed rise again from the dead. And as he did that, then he came to the tomb as we looked at just a few weeks ago. And we love the angel's words that he says to Mary. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. I mean, that is amazing. He spent some days with his disciples, and we saw the important work that the Holy Spirit did on them. Men who were so close to him, and yet did not understand it because their mind was not in, how should we say, as we look at Romans 10 on Resurrection Sunday. Their mouth was there, but their heart, those two things are tied together, the mouth and the heart. You confess with the mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Those two are Siamese twins. They are tied together. One can make a confession. I believe that stuff. 
But it is only when the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is replaced that one will truly believe. The testimony of your word concerning Christ. So Father, we thank you for him and that he is now seated at your right hand and with all authority and uh, power. And there's another event that's going to take place and I know there's so many different views, eschatological views, and yet there is this common theme amongst them that he is Lord and that he is coming again. And we believe that. There's coming a day when he will indeed stand up as he did when Stephen was being stoned. He will stand up and he will indeed come again to claim those who are his, those who through his work were made spotless, without blemish. We can't even comprehend it. I, I can't comprehend that. I have sinful thoughts sometimes. I have sinful intentions. And yet he will come for his bride who he has made perfect. Father, we rejoice in that. And as we now gather around the Lord's table, we certainly are even almost 2,000 years later still waiting and still proclaiming <laughs> that the Lord Jesus Christ did indeed die and rise again from the dead. Father, we thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.